This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. The Taliban is back in Kabul. A few days ago, insurgents entered the Afghan capital, topping off a week in which they'd swept through cities and towns across the country. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport, desperate to get on planes and leave the country at any cost. Taliban fighters behind uh, the desk of the presidential palace. As the Taliban moves in, the West moves out. American helicopters busy over Kabul all day today, ferrying diplomats from the U.S. Embassy to the airport. This disorderly end was not the plan. Today we're going to talk to Ibrahim Bahis, who's one of Crisis Group's Afghanistan experts. We wanted to get Ibrahim on for a special edition to talk about what just happened and, most importantly, what lies ahead. The Taliban have got some big decisions to make. What will a Taliban government look like? Will it share power? What will its rule look like? Will it roll back some of the freedoms that Afghans and Afghan women in particular have enjoyed over the past two decades? How will it pay for the costs of running a state? What will its foreign relations look like? Decisions in the days ahead will set the tone for much of what's to come. Ibrahim, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. So, Ibrahim, we want to use this podcast to look ahead as much as possible. But can we start briefly by just talking through how the Taliban could advance so fast? Just a couple of weeks ago, they controlled much of the countryside. They'd encircled provincial capitals. They controlled some border crossings. But then they overran their first provincial capital. After that, it was, what, eight, nine days until they marched virtually unopposed into Kabul and the presidential palace. Can you say a word or two about how that happened? Within a span of almost 10 days, the Taliban went from not controlling a single provincial center to controlling virtually the entire country, including the capital, Kabul. Now, one of the big features that we noticed was instead of attacking one single target, they spread their attacks throughout the country, targeting many different provincial centers. And I believe the aim there was to overstretch the commandos so that they're unable to defend every single 
place. For example, the commandos prioritized defending Lashkarga. They left Nimroz in the neighboring province, exposed the capital of Nimroz, and the Taliban were able to negotiate a surrender deal and walk in there uncontested. By the commandos, you mean the Afghan special forces? That's correct. So the Afghan special forces and the army corps, one of the seven army corps that was in charge of defending that whole area. Now, that happened on the 6th of August, and within the next few days, the entire north fell. Similarly, because the, the special forces were spread out defending Herat in the west, Lashkarga and Kandahar in the south, the north was left exposed and the Taliban managed to capture seven of the nine provinces in the north. Then the government realized that Mazar's largest city in the north was under threat, so it started focusing resources in the north. And the moment it did that, the Taliban started launching attacks in Ghazni province, in Zabul, in Uruzgan, in Kandahar and Herat. And within a span of two days, it captured Kandahar and Herat. And the moment those two cities collapsed and negotiated a surrender, it completely shattered the, the morale of the security forces. And after that, uh, the Taliban were virtually marching onwards uncontested and just negotiating surrender deals with security forces. And Ibrahim, there seems to, as well as the fighting, there seems to have been a lot of outreach by the Taliban to community leaders, to military commanders, to provincial governors, outreach alongside the military campaign that facilitated some of the the surrenders, as you say, or some of the switching sides that, that happened as the Taliban advanced. This was not something that suddenly happened out of the blue. This was the culmination of uh, decades of a strategy. As an insurgency, the Taliban had tried very different tactics from very harsh terrorist, akin to terrorist types to these local deals. For years, it had been negotiating local ceasefires with forces when it would come under pressure, surrender deals, switching side deals, service delivery deals. They had built a nationwide network dealing with local forces independent of what was happening in Kabul. And that networking between the two sides was what enabled the Taliban after President Biden announced his withdrawal. The Taliban were able to utilize that network to launch a charm campaign, if you want to call it, offering terms of surrender in return for the soldiers handing over all their weapons and equipments and abandoning the checkpoints to go to their homes and families. And that really was the months of campaigning they did that led up to these mass surrenders that we saw in the last few weeks. So if part of the story is the, the Taliban's own strategy, as you say, this, this combination of, of spreading out their military attacks and this attempt to win over people nominally on the government side. The other part of the story is, of course, the Afghan army's collapse, its, its failure to defend these provincial capitals. What do you think kind of went wrong with the, with, with the Afghan security forces? Uh, as you said, the, the collapse, the sudden collapse of the security forces caught many by surprise, especially countries that had invested in Afghanistan, trying to build up a viable security force that would be able to withstand any insurgency and suppress any kind of terrorist threats emanating from the country. Briefly, if I was to say, there were a number of factors. Firstly, the Afghan army was fighting US strategy, but didn't have the air force to be able to defend these sprawling checkpoints they had built all across the country. And that gave opening for the Taliban to isolate, outnumber and overrun individual checkpoints. It was a rinse, wash and repeat technique that they could do and deprive them of reinforcements and just overrun them with sheer numbers. In some cases, soldiers were complaining that they had not received salaries for months on ends. So when faced with the threat of Taliban advances, the option of 
surrendering their weapons and going home to their families and kids suddenly became a much more attractive prospect. One of the underlying issues, of course, behind this whole thing was the endemic uh, corruption. Even uh, for years, there were ghost soldiers, soldiers that didn't exist except on paper, that commanders were putting in the role of the army just to collect uh, their salaries. We saw commanders that were stealing army fuel and selling it in the black market or in the normal market. We saw soldiers and commanders selling weaponry that had been supplied by NATO uh, forces in the black market, in many cases, which ended up in the hands of the Taliban. And the last thing I'll point out was the uh, President Ghani's presidency was something that became increasingly polarized with different tussles going on between him and different political actors. And I think that kind of really lessened the attractiveness of willing to die for a cause that was just for personal ambitions of a few people. How do you think that Western governments sort of managed to convince themselves that the army was stronger than it actually was. It's very easy with hindsight now to look back, of course, but this wasn't the narrative. I mean, the narrative was that even though the Taliban would advance, the Afghan government would be able to control some of the towns and cities, that they'd built a, a strong, at least the special forces or some of the army divisions were, were very strong. I mean, how, how did that narrative come about, sort of given the reality of what we actually then saw? There were signs already there military commanders, U.S. generals and commanders and politicians for years knew that the war was going bad. But they kept lying to themselves and kept believing that, no, things were getting better. They were measuring, creating various metrics to be able to show that things were getting better and eventually the security forces will be able to continue the fight by themselves. A central challenge with any type of measurement you want to do because we can measure how many troops the army has, how many guns they've got, how many uh, checkpoints they've got, what districts they control, but you can't really measure some of the intangibles, the morale of the soldiers, corruption, what kind of impact corruption can have on the morale of troops. Uh, when the central government is not evacuating your soldiers and you feel that sense of abandonment, how quickly things can unravel. So this was a lesson for us. Ibrahim, can we talk a little bit about what's happening now in Kabul? We see these images of Taliban fighters on street corners. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the mood in the city? So the last few days, we have seen life slowly coming back to life. We are seeing signs of bustling. People are coming out to work and they, they are slowly get, finding the courage to come back out. One of the main comments we hear is that how much the Taliban seems to have flooded Kabul with their fighters. They are reported to be fighters virtually on every street corner. And I suppose that's one of the strengths of the Taliban. Uh, they're playing to their strengths because providing security is one of their selling points. Having said that, there are also rumors circulating both on social media and amongst residents in Kabul about them going into houses, dragging people out. There are, some people are reporting their rumors, they're, they're dragging people who worked in the security forces, who former government officials, even staff that work for NGOs. Now, I, I just want to clarify, these are rumors as of yet, but it has a huge impact on the morale of the people. Men are returning back to life in, in a general sense. What is quite clear in the normal life is the absence of many women. There are some women daring to come out and uh, try to live their lives, but uh, by and large, we are not seeing as many women come out to go about their daily business. And is that because the Taliban are deterring them or it's simply because people are, people are still afraid and women are trying to calibrate what the Taliban is going to allow? I believe it's because of the impact of these rumors, there's this dark 
underbelly at daytime they smile and say hello to you and nighttime they come to your house and drag you out so these rumors what kind of psychological impact such rumors are having on the disrupting the lives of people living in Kabul Ibrahim can I push a little bit on this this idea of the Taliban providing security and sort of how people see that as you say one of their strengths in kind of areas they've controlled before has been kind of providing basic law and order albeit often very brutal and and draconian but it still must be enormously intimidating for Kabul residents to sort of have these heavily armed insurgents often looking you know quite ragged people have been fighting for many years hanging out on street corners and providing security for the city plus there are all these reports of abuse their abuses from other parts of the country you know it must be hugely intimidating for many people in Kabul absolutely i would say it's the meeting of two different worlds right now in Kabul on the one hand you've got residents of Kabul who have been able to enjoy many of the benefits that came into Afghanistan over the past 20 years who who many of whom are very young and they've only heard of the the rumors and the brutalities of the Taliban and suddenly out of completely out of the blue you have the whole city flooded with people as you said with flags with fighters looking rugged from the mountains Uh, it uh, one can only imagine what would be going through their mind as uh, they try to live their lives in the presence of such intimidating fighters on every corner of the street so ibrahim we don't know yet what government is going to form um there's a lot of rumors about what the taliban's going to do apparently there are talks ongoing in the qatari capital doha uh, about what the government might look like what what's your sense of this i mean is 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 it going to be a purely taliban government is are the are the taliban going to look to bring in any others to give a sort of a face of of some degree of inclusivity what what, what do you sense as you pointed out the taliban have invited other political actors to come together or i should say they have stated that they will consult with other political actors in afghanistan as well as the international community on what the new future government looks like they have so far abstained from declaring a return of the emirate which is a positive sign it shows that they, there is at least some room to have a discussion on what uh, the new political framework uh, could look like uh, now uh, the original plan was to have people go to doha to have these discussions but because of the chaotic scenes that we are seeing in the kabul's airport Uh, it is now rumored that the taliban's de- delegation will instead fly into kandahar and perhaps I, i assume they might be traveling onwards to kabul to hold these discussions with some of the political uh, actors that are still present in the country exactly what they will decide is difficult to gauge at this point there are some hopes that the taliban would be willing to be a bit more flexible i, I think it also shows a willingness in uh, the fact that they have total military dominance and despite that they're still reaching out to political opponents i think it shows that that there is a pragmatic kind of lens to it that they know that the previous bone uh, postponed political order failed because it failed to get everyone into the new poli- get the buy in of all the major political actors uh, i think they might be for the longevity of this new political order i think there are pragmatic reasons for why they would want to get everyone on board but having said that this will be one where the taliban will essentially be dictating the terms of what this future political order will look like it it will not be a negotiation in a position of equality or parity between the various parties anybody tell me if this is right at the moment there's talk of former president hamid karzai as a potential interlocutor for the taliban on a future government 
Abdullah Abdullah, the head of the previous government's peace talks. He's potentially involved. There's also talk of Gulbuddin Hekmatia, who used to be allied to the Taliban. There's other names floating around. But so far, except for Abdullah Abdullah, none of the big former Northern Alliance commanders, you know, the guys who fought the Taliban in the 90s and were instrumental in ousting them from power with the Americans in 2001, there's no suggestion so far that any of them are involved. You're absolutely correct. We know President, former President Ashraf Ghani has left the country and he, he's not part of this transitional process. The only big names that we're hearing, former President Hamid Karzai and Abdullah Abdullah. Hikmatyar uh, also is in that is part of that team. But the big political actors, whether it was the Northern Alliance figures such as Amrullah Saleh or Salahuddin Rabbani or Yunus Kanuni, none of these are present or have indicated that they will uh, attend any kind of negotiations with the Taliban. That kind of indicates despite the Taliban's attempt to kind of win over people, there really is an absence of many figures that played a crucial role in the post-Bond political order. And if we think about the movement itself, the Taliban, obviously it's, it's traditionally a very secretive organization, but you have this uh, Emir Hebatullah Akunzada, sort of reclusive figure who's presumably somewhere in Pakistan. You have a leadership council, dozens of Taliban leaders, and then you have these sort of three deputies. There's Mullah Barada, who's supposedly now flying into Kandahar. You've got uh, Mauli Yaqub, the uh, son of Mullah Omar, the original Taliban leader. You've got uh, Sirajuddin Haqqani, uh, these three deputies, do you know much about the relations among these three deputies and their relationships with Hebatullah? Are they likely to, to agree themselves on what government should form, on how they're going to behave now that they control the country? Uh, Maulwi Hebatullah, much like his pre two predecessors, he has delegated most of the daily management of the movement so far as an insurgency to the leadership council. The leadership council, which originally was 10 people under Mullah Omar, has been expanding over the years and now reportedly has uh, around about 30 or more members in it. And the three deputies he has appointed, he, when he was initially appointed the leader, he chose two deputies, Molwi Yaqub and uh, Sirajuddin Haqqani. But after Mullah brother was released from Pakistani prison at the request of the U.S., he was appointed as the head of the political office and also as a third deputy. Sorry, Ibrahim, just to jump in. He was released so, in essence, he could lead the negotiations with the US that resulted in the, the Doha deal, February 2020, that saw the US promise to pull out troops. Absolutely. I think the argument presented was that he is the only figure within the movement that has the charisma and that standing within the movement to be able to pull off a, a deal with the US. So that I presume that was the argument presented, and that's why the US tried to get him released so that they could negotiate a deal. But these three figures officially in the they come under the Amir of the Taliban and they're also part of the leadership council. I, I imagine it's quite natural for them to be tussling and trying to place themselves in the best position to be the to have a high the highest chance of succeeding the leader if that position was to become vacant. So then you also have these relations between Taliban leaders and the rank and file, the movement itself. I mean, over the past 15 years, there's been this kind of almost cottage industry of people recommending ideas for how to split the movement, to pull away mid-level commanders, to pull away fighters from, uh, from the leadership. And, you know, none of these efforts, despite many millions of dollars spent trying to do so, none of these efforts have, uh, have worked. And the Taliban has actually remained kind of remarkably cohesive while it's been fighting its, uh, its insurgency. 
But now the Taliban controls the country. Its leaders are going to have to take some really difficult decisions, some of the decisions we've been talking about, whether to share power, what their rules going to look like, decisions that been, they've been avoiding for, for, for many years. Do you think those decisions will introduce new tensions within the movement that didn't exist while it was fighting, fighting an insurgency or that they didn't have to grapple with while it was fighting an insurgency? I think there were a number of, a couple of big reasons why the Taliban were able to keep their cohesion despite all these efforts at fracturing them. One was the history of the Taliban. It's it's built on an emirate model and the Taliban from the get-go, from day one, they have been trying to instill this within its rank and file religious obligation of obedience, blind obedience to the leadership. The other factor that really helped them maintain cohesion was that they were fighting an insurgency with some of the most advanced armies of the world. They were facing an existential threat and they knew that if they were to fracture and uh, split amongst themselves, they would be in a much weaker position now that they've come out of the shadows. They're no longer an insurgency. Now they have the task of being a government or governing the country. There are areas we need to be watching out for to see whether the movement will now potentially have uh, fault lines and uh, schisms within it. One of the reasons for that is that leaders and commanders will be competing for resources and positions. That kind of opens up an, an area where it could potentially lead to, if not outright fragmentation, at least fault lines emerging within the movement. And the other issue is that the Taliban have been able to maintain their cohesiveness because they were able to avoid some of the big questions when it came to governance. They were willing to be ambiguous on policies and give latitude to local commanders to decide policies how they saw fit. But now that it is coming into a governance mode, it's going to have to answer and resolve some of those basic and important governance issues and has to adopt a singular policy on issues. What that could potentially lead to is that you could have constituencies, hardliner constituencies pushing towards one direction and reformist elements within the movement pushing towards another dimension. So Mullah Barada, who we talked about, put out this statement recently suggesting that even he was a bit taken aback by how fast the Taliban had taken over. How prepared do you think the leadership is for what comes next? I should say that as a secretive movement, it's incredibly hard to get inside the thinking of the Taliban movement and see what uh, some of the considerations that they go through. But we have seen some signs that seem to indicate that at least at the leadership level, they have been thinking about some of these big governance issues and perhaps have even come to some kind of consensus. We saw the way that they executed their military strategy in taking over provincial uh, capitals and district centers. We saw the way they're currently managing in Kabul and I think that indicates that the leadership has been thinking about this day and how they would do things if they were to come to a position of power. Now having said that I also think that within the rank and file when you speak with Taliban fighters and commanders on the ground you get the sense that they haven't really been thinking about some of these big issues and have decided that we will resolve those when the time comes. That seems to be the standard response you get to a lot of the big and important governance issues. My sense is that while the leadership has been thinking about some of these challenges and issues in a pragmatic sense, the rank and file are disconnected from that thinking. And the reason for that perhaps could be that the leadership has remained relatively consistent throughout these years. They were able to enjoy safe havens in Pakistan and therefore were not decimated to the same extent as the rank and file. Whereas fighters who were on the ground, they were completely decimated 
decimated. In, in many cases, these are second or third generation. Some of these fighters had never even seen the Emirate. Uh, so for them, they have been recruited either because of kinship ties or because they bought into the Taliban's propaganda that their Emirate in the 1990s was the perfect version of how a government should be. And they expect that when the Taliban come back to power, they will be implementing exactly the same policies that they had in the 1990s. So I think a big challenge for the Taliban leadership now would be if they want to do things differently, how do they manage the expectations of the rank and file? Ibrahim, let's talk a little bit about uh, outside leverage. A big part of the idea behind the peace talks was this sense that the Taliban wanted international legitimacy and they wanted aid in essence, a lot of which uh, is, is Western aid, Western funding, and that they were going to make compromises to get recognition and, and aid. And I think what you could argue now is that the past few weeks have shown that even if they do want aid and legitimacy, you know, obviously they wanted power, they wanted to rule the country again, uh, much more than that perhaps uh, shouldn't have come as a, a surprise. But do you think that there is still some leverage, that there's some incentive for the Taliban to do certain things, whether it's sharing power, whether it's moderating its governance in exchange for funding, uh, which Afghanistan desperately needs? I mean, it's an incredibly poor state. Uh, they need to pay their civil servants. They need to keep the state running or in exchange for, for, for international recognition. I think one of the big lessons we have learned since the Doha deal or even pre, pre-Doha deal is that while the Taliban appear to be desperate to want international legitimacy and recognition, as well as attract aid or business investment, there are limitations to how much they want. The more a movement is dependent or an organization is dependent on aid, and the more the, that aid is conditional on non-core issues, that's when it's optimal and most effective to use aid as a leverage. But when you start using it with an organization that's not uh, uh, dependent on the aid, or when you use it with an organization such as the Taliban that is dependent on aid, but on core issues, the, the, the use of aid as a leverage begins to diminish. If they see a demand by donor states that they consider could potentially lead to fragmentation of the movement, it hasn't changed the movement's position. Some of their core ideological positions. Now, for example, when it comes to women's rights, no matter how much aid has been offered, they have been unwilling to accept the uh, positions of the international community on women's rights. They have made some compromises, but they have been unwilling to cross kind of ideological red lines when it comes to some of these core ideological issues. And so, Ibrahim, what do you, what do you think that means for uh, girls being able to go to high school or university or work in, for example, a bank or work in government positions? It's been a surprising development in, in the sense that when during the 1990s, the Taliban were not allowing girls to go to school and you definitely uh, saw very few women working in various sectors. But currently, they have announced that all girls should be going to school. They have uh, assured women that they will be able to work as teachers and as doctors and uh, health workers. So in those two sectors, at least, we've seen a, a change in the Taliban. Recently, there are even indications the Taliban have been going out and campaigning that women join their government, that they are looking to employ women. Exactly in which positions and what kind of limitations will be placed on them remains to be seen. So Ibrahim, correct me if this is wrong, but the Taliban's position on girls going to high school or on women's university education, women working in jobs other than as teachers or doctors is still very unclear. I um, mean, I think that is important 
context for some of their, you know, their recent language and the recent supposed compromises they've offered. But even with some of that more moderate language, you know, isn't there good reason to question whether it's a whether it's a genuine change or it's just a way of kind of putting on an acceptable face and they'll revert back to form kind of soon enough? That's definitely a possibility and what the international community will be watching out for in the months, uh, weeks and months and years ahead. There are, I suppose we could say there are two possible scenarios. The movement could be using these as a short-term compromise in order to attract aid and legitimacy and slowly over time they begin to place more and more restrictions. The other possibility is that they might be seeing this as a fresh start, as an opportunity to do things differently and they're trying to use this as an excuse to convince the hardliners within the movement that this is the way they need to approach it, but definitely an important consideration in the weeks ahead. So, Ibrahim, I mean, we, we, we talk as though that women's rights was the, the only condition that, that governments have put on the Taliban, but in fact, arguably, the bigger condition that they put on is their links with transnational terrorist groups, with al-Qaeda in particular. There's been quite a bit of talk, especially in the counterterrorism community over the last week, that Taliban-Al-Qaeda relations remain as strong as they've ever been, that Al-Qaeda fighters helped this latest Taliban offensive. What do you make of those claims? I mean, how, how would you describe the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda now? The relationship and history of the Al-Qaeda and the Taliban has been very complex and intertwined and has seems to have gone through various phases and evolved over time. There, there are claims that the, the two have unbreakable ties because of intermarriage and whatnot. But I, I think one of the bigger considerations for why the Taliban have been unwilling to combat some of the other militant groups, I think the consideration stems from the fear that this could fragment the movement. And the Taliban fear that if they were to break ties in a way that they're unable to convince their rank and file, this could lead to a split within the movement. Having said that, I think this concern might not be as great as it was at once. Since the US has intervened in Afghanistan, the most of the leadership in of Al-Qaeda in the country has either been killed or dispersed. Right now, Al-Qaeda's leadership is dispersed throughout the globe. They've got leaders in Syria, in Yemen, in in North Africa. So that reliance of Al-Qaeda on the Taliban is not as great. I do just want to point out that 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 since the 1990s, things have slightly changed within the Taliban's movement when it comes to their relationship with foreign militant groups. We saw SKP or ISIS Khorasan province make a strong presence in, in Afghanistan. And initially, the Taliban seemed to be quite hesitant to try to challenge the group. But then eventually, uh, I think through a lot of messaging and effort, the Taliban managed to convince their rank and file that they need to combat this threat. And the Taliban have uh, fought a very, very brutal campaign against ISKP. I I think that kind of shows that the movement might now have a bit more kind of, if I was to say, discipline to be able to fight groups that don't obey the orders of the uh, Taliban leadership. So, Ibrahim, we've talked about some of the Taliban's big decisions coming up in the days and the weeks ahead, but international actors, Western powers, regional governments, they've also got some pretty big decisions coming up on whether they recognise the government, under what conditions, what aid looks like. But they've also got some immediate challenges. I mean, there's dealing with this intense humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Many people displaced. It's been going on for some time and it's got dramatically worse over the past few weeks. Uh, And then there's the fact that many people want to get out and they need safe passage, they need support to do that. So if you're sort of thinking through the immediate priorities for foreign governments, what would you say they should focus on? 
Well, I think you've summed up the two most important priorities. One is having a safe corridor, giving them the ability to leave the country. And I think the most important priority for the international troops at the airport is that they need to secure an orderly uh, uh, way to get these people out of the country that need to get out and that are at special risk. On the other hand, there is also an impending humanitarian crisis unfolding in the country. With the uh, outbreak of the COVID pandemic, Afghanistan's population has gone through tremendous suffering. Afghanistan's poverty rate has shot up to 43.7% over the last year. This is before this recent spate of fighting. This year in 2021, half a million people have been internally displaced. This is in addition to the 5 million people that were displaced before this. What has made things worse for a lot of these people is that Afghanistan's in the midst of a drought right now. Uh, according to the UN, 18 million, or uh, 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 roughly half the population of the country, is at risk of uh, famine uh, and food insecurity right now. So this is a huge challenge. Ibrahim, could we talk a little bit about this sort of generation of Afghans that's grown up in cities over the past 20 years, whose you know, who's vision, whose values whose expectations of, of life are so different to that of the, of the Taliban, you know, as you described, this rural Islamist, deeply conservative insurgency. Now, you, I mean, you know many of this younger generation. Clearly, this has got to be very dark days for them. And, and even if the Taliban are pragmatic, uh, you know, the lives and hopes of this generation have, have changed dramatically for the worst, really, over the past couple of weeks. Can you give a sense of that at all? A whole generation of Afghans has grown up with the promises of democracy and freedom and a, a liberal order. We have to remember that the majority of Afghanistan's population is under 30 years old. So right now, speaking with friends and families, there seem to be two types. One are those who really invested a lot into, who had a lot at uh, stake with this political system. They are completely shattered. Uh, I mean, they risk life and limb for a political system with the hope that the U.S. will be with them for the long run. And right now, they they, they, they feel despair at, at what they're seeing in the country. They feel anger, not only with the U.S. and NATO, but also with their own government, with President Ghani just abandoning the country when the things became difficult on the ground. And they feel fear for their family members and their friends. That's one one segment of the population. But there's also another segment who, again, grew up with these same values, but they, they became disillusioned with their government, not with the political system. They still wanted the Republican values, but they were disillusioned with either President Karzai or more recently with President Ghani. Right now, they are still in Kabul. They're still living their lives and they're putting a brave campaign. You can almost sense that they're trying going out there on purpose onto the streets and trying to hold the Taliban accountable to instill in them some of these values to show to them that this is a new Afghanistan and the Taliban need to adapt to the new realities. So we are seeing women going out there without wearing burqas. We're seeing young people going out there and meeting and greeting the Taliban. And really, I think you almost feel like this is a collective effort, at least in Kabul, to try to show the Taliban the new Afghanistan. Ibrahim, thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. For more of our work as things develop in Afghanistan, you can check out our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thanks, as ever, to our producers, Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi, and thanks especially to our listeners. 
If you like the show, please do leave us a review or rating. Feel free to post questions or comments. We'll be back the first week of September and hope very much you'll join us then. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.